hello, hello. Welcome back to The Killer Kind. I hope everyone has had a great October so far. I hope you're watching all of the scary movies, visiting the haunted houses with their masks on, of course, <laughs> carving pumpkins, and all the good spooky season things. This is always my favorite time of year, if you can't tell by now. So I was a little nervous that we're not, we were not going to be able to have all these fall activities. But so far, it seems that all the pumpkin patches are open and all the haunted houses are open, you know, with limited, you know, requirements and limitations due to COVID. But it seems to be open. So to me, I'm thankful that fall is kind of somewhat feeling normal after considering no other season has this year so far. And speaking of scary movies, I would love to know what your favorite scary movie is or like what do you absolutely have to watch during the month of October. My favorites are your basic white girl Halloween movies, <laughs> um, Hocus Pocus, Halloween Town, and all of the Disney Halloween movies. And don't judge me any more than you probably already have, but my all-time favorite scary movie is the first Jeepers Creepers. I literally can watch it any day of the year. I don't know what it is and why I like it so much. <laughs> maybe it's because I love Justin Long or maybe it's that 2001, like almost 1990s vibe that the movie has. I don't know, but I love it. I also love like those Texas Chainsaw Massacre and all the Saw movies. I definitely prefer like gory movies over the, um, over the haunted house movies or like demons or whatever else i'm not a big fan of those so let me know which are your favorites and i will i would love to try to watch those this year you can let me know on the podcast instagram page at killer.kind.pod i would definitely love to hear your movies so without further ado let's go ahead and get into this week's case I have another horrific halloween episode for you it's about a troubled man it's about a troubled young man who takes the horror of Halloween night to a disturbing level. This is the case from Halloween night back in 2010, the story of the Halloween butcher. So today's case takes place in a pretty small town in northern Ohio called Sandusky. And on October 31st, 2010, a young man named Devin Griffin, who was 16 at the time, comes home from church to his mom's house. Devin had spent the weekend at his dad's house and had went to church that morning as he usually did on Sundays because he sang in the church's choir. Now, let me pause here and say I'm seeing a slight trend in my Halloween episode so far that I did not intend. If you listened to last week's episode, you'll remember that our killer in that episode also sang in the church's choir and attended church regularly. Now, spoiler alert, Devin is not our killer here, <laughs> but it's just a very odd trend we seem to be having, and I'm, I don't know what to think about that. But anyways, um, Devin arrives to the home of his mom, Susan, and his stepdad, Bill Liskey. Devin had a biological brother, Derek Griffin, 23, and a stepbrother named BJ Liskey, 24, that also lived at the house. Now, when Devin gets home, he just goes straight up to his room and starts playing video games. Just his normal Sunday routine. However, after a short time, he realizes the house is super quiet. And as I mentioned, there are four other people that 
live at this house or kind of stay at this house. So he started to look around and just kind of seen that or kind of figure out that's kind of odd, right? Now, if I were him, I would have started looking around for someone as soon as I got home. But again, he's 16. Most 16-year-olds have kind of like a one-tracked mind. You know, it's either a girl or video games, right? <laughs> so around 1.30, he goes downstairs to try to find his mom, Susan. And he ends up finding his mom and stepdad still in their bed. They have their comforter kind of pulled up over their heads. And and later he reports that he just started casually talking to his mom. You know, just kind of getting ready to wake her up. And when he doesn't get a response, he walks over to her side of the bed and just pulls the cover back. And sadly, he sees all of the sheets and pillowcases that his mom is laying on covered in blood. Now, his immediate reaction is that they're playing a Halloween prank on him, right? It's Halloween day. Maybe they're just playing a joke. But unfortunately, that's not the case. He soon realizes what actually happened, and he runs out of the house before checking on anyone else or checking for anyone else. He ends up calling his aunt first. Um, He didn't really know what to do. He said when his aunt arrives, she immediately calls police. Ultimately, police determined that Susan and Bill Liskey and Devin, Devin's brother, Derek Griffin, had all been tragically murdered. Bill had been shot in the face and head five times at close range, range of less than one to two feet. Susan had also been shot in the head three times at close range. Police believed Susan's body had been moved at some point. Um, that's different than what they believed about Bill. It seems that after the murder, her body had been moved, or maybe shortly before, based on the position her body was in when they found her. Now, one very disturbing fact related to Susan was that police determined that she had been sexually assaulted, either just before her death or just after. Now, at this time, you're thinking about the two brothers, though, BJ and Derek. You know, at this point, we haven't found Derek. Or BJ. Well, sadly, Derek was found upstairs in his room. When police searched the house, they found Derek's room was locked, and they ended up kicking in the door. And they found him curled up in his bed facing towards the wall, and it was determined that Derek had been murdered, but by blunt force trauma to the head. So now police are on the hunt for a killer and two murder weapons. Because, again, the parents were killed with a gunshot wound, and then the brother was killed with a blunt force object. Not long into their investigation, they end up finding a bloody claw hammer, which matched the wounds the wounds on Derek's head. But what about the gun used to kill the parents? Well, Bill had several guns in the home. It was a known fact that he collected um or had a gun collection, if you will. So police took all of the guns they found and had them tested in the lab. And unfortunately, nothing came back. Um, none of them had appeared to have been the murder weapon. However, investigators thought that the gun had been um, possibly dumped in the pond on the couple's property um, because they would find, or they would end up finding muddy footprints on the back porch and on the path leading to the pond investigators end up draining the pond and they don't 
find any weapon. They also take it one step further by bringing in gun-sniffing dogs to see if they um, could find it maybe buried in the ground somewhere underneath, you know, within the pond or, or the surrounding area. And they still came up empty. So the only evidence they really have here is, one, the DNA they they took from Susan, who we know was sexually assaulted. Um, but we know that DNA evidence can take a while to come back. So during this time, police continue their search. They search the only other suspicious bit of evidence that they come up with was at the family's cabin. This was not at the family home where the family was killed, but at a cabin that they owned. The cabin was about 170 miles from the family home, but since it's part of the family property, I'm sure they just searched it for clues. And they found an uneaten Subway sandwich on the counter in the kitchen at the cabinet, at the cabin, and... I know that seems weird, but but it does come into play later in the story. So, although the sandwich may be the only, like, physical evidence, and obviously the DNA that they're working to get, police instantly put their suspicion on the third brother that lived in the home, B.J. Liskey. And this is because, one, they can't find him. He's not immediately available. And to say that B.J. lived a troubled life would be an understatement. For the ages. The kid had a rap sheet like a mile long. BJ's bad habits seemed to start just after his parents' divorce when he was younger and definitely after he married Susan. Definitely after his dad married Susan. Now, I couldn't find much about BJ prior to his dad marrying Susan, but in everything I read, it really seemed like this was a significant turning point in BJ's attitude. After his dad got remarried, BJ started skipping class and acting more angry and even violent. Um, back in 2002, when he was just 16 years old, BJ was on house arrest for unknown reasons. His dad had to call police because he was threatening to kill himself. But when police arrived, BJ actually attacked them. Um, and in 2004, police were called yet again because he got into a fight with his stepmom. BJ struck Susan in the chest during this fight. And then just a couple months after that, there was another assault on Susan where BJ struck her over the head with a coffee mug and stole her car keys. BJ was charged with assault um, during this incident, but somehow was found incompetent to stand trial and charges were ultimately dropped. Charges were not dropped by the family. Um, they were dropped because he pled not guilty by reasons of insanity. So basically what BJ is saying here is that he was mentally ill and he referred back to the incident when he was thrown out and you know, when he was trying to commit suicide and ultimately ended up attacking the two police officers. Now, unfortunately, the case was thrown out and charges were dropped, like I said, but this didn't really solve anything for the family. So it was after this that the family knew something had to get with this kid, right? So they sent BJ to a group home to work on his mental state and to focus on getting better. But what do you know? This didn't help either, right? So BJ had at least three encounters with police after entering the group home. One of the incidents involved a physical altercation with his dad 
and after BJ attacked, this was after BJ attacked Susan in the shower, Bill had to call police and physically remove his son from the house. Now, going back to the investigation, police tracked down a family friend named Mark. Mark was a friend who lived just across the street from the Liskey home. He would later tell police that Bill confided in him when it came to the struggles that he had with his son. Mark said that Bill told him about a physical or all these physical fights he was having with BJ and how he was sort of at his wit's end with them. Um, Mark also said that he told Bill that he was extremely concerned for the family's safety because of BJ. Um, But he said that Bill genuinely thought that BJ would never actually hurt them, that he would never go that far. Um, it's, It's just sad to think about how much he loved him. It said, Bill said that he knew his son had issues, but he told Mark that getting that he was getting him help and everything was going to be fine. And it's sad because Mark said that Bill loved him so much and he never wanted to focus on the bad things that his son did. He really tried to find hope in the situation and genuinely believe that his son would get better. So in 2006, Bill filed for guardianship of BJ and it was granted. Um, it was my understanding that BJ lived with his mom um, and obviously I think went back and forth between his mom's house and a group home. I don't know the exact situation then, but that's kind of my understanding. So, but in 2007, BJ was diagnosed with schizophrenic, um, bipolar type. Now with this diagnosis, BJ began taking medication and it really seemed to help. But unfortunately, whenever he would start feeling good, he would stop taking his medication and This would result in just a vicious up and down cycle of BJ's behavior. Bill Lisk ended up putting his son back into a group home in another effort to get him the help that he needed. And to kind of explain the group home situation, it seems like BJ lives at the group home full time, but it's almost like a rehab situation too. He attends therapy sessions and is literally just there to focus on getting better. He's not allowed to leave. Um, He is only able to be checked out by Bill or, I assume, um, anybody that Bill approves. Now, just before Halloween 2010, Bill decides to take BJ on a father-son hunting trip at the family cabin. Bill told friends and family that he just wanted to bond with his son and be there for him during this roller coaster time. He really loved his son, and all he wanted to do was show BJ that he loved him and was there for him no matter what. And this was what the hunting trip meant to Bill. So Bill goes to check BJ out of the group home, and the two go on the hunting trip. Now everything seems to go good, and the two arrive back home on Saturday, October 30th, the day before the murders. It seems as though Bill drops BJ off at the group home where he's living, but later Bill and BJ end up getting together with some friends, which I believe that Susan goes along with the two also, but Derek, the other brother, did not. One of the friends at the party was the family friend Mark that I mentioned earlier. He would later tell police that he found it odd that Derek was not with the family, but he mentioned that he knew Derek and BJ did not get along either, so he didn't think too much of it at the time. But anyways, the group sort of 
hung out and had like a little Halloween party. It's It really just ended up being a group of people having some drinks. Now, Bill decides that BJ should just stay the night at the family house instead of taking him back to the group home that night. Now, keep in mind, this rarely happens due to the negative history that BJ has with the family. He's not usually allowed to stay the night, but Bill decides to make the exception this time because it's late and because they've all been drinking. So, Bill ends up making up the living room sofa for BJ to sleep on. Now, before we go any further to the timeline um, of the day of the murders, let's back up and discuss what we know about the day before. So, I mentioned earlier that BJ had two stepbrothers, one of which were killed in the family murders. That brother was Griffin, excuse me, that brother was Derek Griffin. It appears that Derek was killed before the parents, because um, as I said, he was hit over the head with an object, and the parents were killed with a gunshot wound to the head. So during the investigation, police were trying to determine the family's whereabouts the day before, basically trying to figure out what led to the killings and and what happened when. And one thing they learned is that Derek's last correspondence with anyone was around 2.20 p.m. the day before. And why am I saying this? Because police believe that Derek was actually killed on Saturday, the day before the rest of the family. Um, And why did they think this? Because they learned that BJ had gone with his dad on the hunting trip and supposedly went back to the group home. However, When police found that uneaten Subway sandwich that I mentioned, they went to the nearest Subway and pulled surveillance footage. And who did they find on that footage? BJ Liskey. Around 2.30, they see BJ walk into the Subway and purchase the exact Subway sandwich from the kitchen counter and walk out. Now, if you recall, BJ is not allowed to leave the group home. Someone had to physically sign him out. So, we know he shouldn't be out roaming around town and walking into restaurants, especially by himself. So, this led police to believe that BJ may have been hiding out at the family cabin instead of going back to the group home that he was supposed to be staying at. So, before police can go to the cabin, they end up putting out a bolo on the vehicle they see BJ driving in the surveillance footage. This is basically just a public announcement telling the public and other law enforcement um, to be on the lookout for this vehicle. And if they spot it, they need to call and report it because this is a possible armed suspect in a murder. But police immediately go get the necessary paperwork to search this cabin. And they do arrive at the cabin and find the vehicle they are looking for. And ultimately, they find B.J. Liskey. B.J. was taken into custody without incident. He was taken at gunpoint, though, because of the fact he was a suspected killer on the loose. B.J. was charged with three counts of aggravated murder and was set to face trial. Now, due to his mental issues and with his history of violence, um, he was forced to go through a competency evaluation in order to determine if he's fit to stand trial. He was held on a $3 million bond while all of this was waiting to be determined. Um, And it was determined that he shared 
or excuse me, it was determined that the jail BJ was held at also held a family member of one of the murder victims. We don't know which one, but this caused BJ to have to be moved to another jail. Now, I'm assuming this is just for the safety of BJ because who knows what the family member could have done to BJ knowing what he had done to the family. Um, But the competency came back to show that BJ was sane at the time of the murders and during the trial. Although his lawyer made several statements saying that that should not have been the case. However, BJ ultimately pleaded guilty to charges and he gave this statement and I'll read it for you here. It says, I love my dad very much and it makes me sick every single day to think about what I did. I can't really explain why this happened. All I can think of is that most of it had to do with my mental illness. There's not a day that goes by that I won't feel horrible for what I've done. It's my fault, and I don't blame anyone but myself. I never intended this to happen. It wasn't because of Susan, Derek, or even my father. I believe it was an internal struggle with my mental illness. Now, in exchange for his guilty plea, the death penalty was taken off the table. It was on the table due to Ohio's beliefs in the death the death penalty and due to the fact he had killed multiple people. Now I want to circle back to the whole sanity issue during this trial. Like I said, um, BJ's lawyers did not believe that BJ should have been ruled sane. He made the statement during trial that he thought that alcohol could have played a role here um, or a role in the murders. Not just because of the alcohol, but because he thought his mental state could have been severely hindered by mixing the alcohol with the medication he was taking for his mental illness. However, the courts argued that BJ was in fact sane because, and the way they proved this was because BJ attempted to flee. Because BJ went to the cabin to try to hide, this is where police found him. So, he had not been so had he not been sane, he probably would have went back to the group home and just kind of act like nothing had happened, nothing was wrong. He clearly knew right from wrong, and that's the big thing about a sanity plea. Therefore, you have to be held responsible. Um, but ultimately, he was charged and was put in prison for life without the possibility of parole. And unfortunately, in 2016, BJ was found dead in his jail cell from a self-inflicted wound. Now, before we close out the episode, I wanted to bring Devin back up. Devin was the one who discovered the horrible scene, and I just, I feel terrible for him, right? Like, to find out your whole family had been murdered, but by your own stepbrother, even, you know? And during the trial, Devin gave this statement that he actually stopped by the house before going to church to get a shirt to wear. And he saw BJ at the house that morning, but he didn't see anyone else. Devin said that BJ seemed kind of happier than he usually did. So looking back at the situation, he was pretty sure the family was already dead during this time. And he just had no idea. And I'm sure he was so confused why BJ didn't kill him then, you know? Like, 
how could you not think about that? He just killed your whole family and then he runs into you in the house. Like, it's a miracle that you're even alive, right? So that's it, guys. That's the conclusion of the case. That's the conclusion of this second Halloween episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, again, be careful on Halloween. <laughs> we have one more episode uh, before Halloween. Um, it'll come out in two weeks from today. So in the meantime, keep enjoying your October Try not to scare you off from Halloween, but just keep in mind that Halloween and the month of October is a scary time. And as if it couldn't be scary enough, it's 2020. So who knows what can happen, right? But anyway, anyways, guys, I hope you guys have a great two weeks. I will see you back here then. Enjoy your time. Stay safe. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Bye.